Hello, everyone, and welcome to LambdaCast. I'm your host, David Kuntz, and I'm joined this week by my co-host, Aaron Johnson. Hi, everyone. I am a, a desktop application developer currently working in uh, JavaScript with Electron. And Aaron, tell them what you do. Um, I do C-sharp application development. Most of that work on the desktop. And my role in the cast is primarily um, as the beginner to ask questions and kind of be the functional programmer newbie. Excellent. Uh, we've been uh, hearing from some of you. Uh, we get contacted through our email address, which is contact at lambdacast.com. Uh, we also hear from people on the Slack channel, the fp dot or sorry, fpchat.com Slack community, where we have created a LambdaCast channel. So you can join us there. And uh, one piece of email we got this uh, since the last cast, uh, we want to bring up because it wasn't um, sort of, we get a lot of like, hey, great job. And, and we totally appreciate hearing those. And occasionally we get questions that um, are good to bring up on the show. So we wanted to do that. Brian Berry wrote in and said, does learning FP me not learning other parts of computer science. Uh, he mentions that he's sort of just dipping his toes into functional programming, but has been a professional for for many years, for eight years, and that you know he's come to to learn that there's there's a ton of things out there. You know, he mentions cryptography, concurrency, networking, compilers, algorithms, graph theory, AI. You know, there's a lot of things to learn, and he, so he's kind of asking since since FP has or is generally regarded as having a, a steep learning curve, he wonders that, or he worries that it might mean that he would have to give up other things. And uh, what are our thoughts on this? Um, so for me, jumping in, I'd say um, that you could say in a sense that for sure, you know, learning functional programming, if you have a certain amount of budget that you put into for kind of sharpening the saw or for staying, staying up on technology, that's that some of that time does go into functional programming. But I think that it is undoubtedly time well spent. It's not so specific as a lot of the examples that he talks about, like cryptography, concurrency. Functional programming and imperative both have cryptography and concurrency in them. You're going to be doing all the, all the minor things. Well, not really minor, but um, all the pieces of programming are going to exist in both imperative and functional. And so functional kind of brings you to a whole different mindset for how you might look at those and how you might look at doing them. And sometimes uh, there's a whole lot of shared similarity. And so you're not necessarily wasting time spent learning FP that you could be doing somewhere else. If you learn AI and, and imperative, you might do it slightly. Well, AI is kind of a weird example, but the basic concept of how you might program it really is going to apply in both schools of thought. And it just depends it just uh, comes down to how it gets implemented depending on which programming style you use. Right. If you learn what a neural net or a genetic algorithm is for AI, for example, uh, you don't have to relearn that when you switch from one to the other. Like you can carry that along. And of course, the way you implement it, like you're saying, the specifics are different, but the concepts are all the same. Yeah. And I might even take issue with the idea that functional programming is really, really difficult or the, or the steep learning curve. Um, and that's uh, you know that's from someone that is still learning it. I think that maybe that maybe that first that first couple hours where you're like, what is going on here, is a very very steep adjustment to understanding what's going on. Um, but uh, so I'm, I may just be at that sweet spot where like I just know enough to think, oh man, I know everything about functional programming now. I'm all set. And I hear like you know Dave talking often about how oh man, I'm just getting started. There's so much to learn. And I think oh well maybe I, maybe I have a lot more to learn, I just don't realize. But um, it's gotten a lot more enjoyable once I got over that very, very initial hump of the completely different starting basic point. Oh, you know, you can't change a variable, things like that. Feeling like you have zero tools in this new paradigm? Like mm -hmm. you, you have, you're equipped, completely unequipped to do anything? Like you can't even write hello world sort mm -hmm. of thing? Once you get past that, it gets, you're saying it, you felt it getting easier. Like it hasn't felt like a a learning cliff or learning, you know, super steep thing. It's more like there's an initial hump and then it's like the normal, yep, it's a lot of work. And just like anything, it's, it's doable, but it's, it takes time. Yeah. I mean, I'm even thinking about, I'm having, having a project coming up. I'm thinking about using uh, one of the many functional programming options out there called Elm for the, uh, for the front end side of things, because I feel like ah, it's not going to take all that much more time. It'll be convenient to program in it. It's going to give me some nice experience. 
And so with the relatively small amount of time I put in, I mean, I'm doing this podcast, so I can't say it's that small anymore, <laughs> but sure. uh, with the, with just a little bit of time spent. So if you guys have listened to this podcast up to now, you're just as experienced as I am. And I feel like I'm ready to go ahead and take that next step and just give it a try and with some, with a real world application. Awesome. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, I don't really have much to add to that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, the functional programming, I don't think, is nearly as big of a learning curve as people want to think it is, or maybe uh, or it's presented that way. Maybe some people like to play it up because they've gotten over that hump and they want to feel really good about what they've learned. Uh, don't let that intimidate you. Um, it's I don't think it's any more complicated than learning any topic that you would learn. Um, you know, it, I don't think it's worse than cryptography or AI or compilers. Um, I don't think it's really a bigger topic. Um, it's certainly a very deep topic. So if we're talking about becoming the absolute master where you do every last thing, sure, that's a gigantic mountain to climb. But, I mean, you don't need that to write programs, to be proficient, to be professionally employed. Yeah, I would say that in imperative, too, if you're – I, I certainly don't know everything about imperative. I've been programming imperative for a long time, and I certainly don't know everything about it. I might know more conceptually about functional already given the, given the time we spent on it. So you very likely have the tools. Well, I'm not going to say I know more conceptually, but still. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, as always, send us uh, anything you want us to talk about, uh, requests for shows, comments, anything like that. Contact at lambdacast.com. We also suggest, as always, that you come join us on the fpchat.com Slack community. We have a LambdaCast channel that we have created, and a few people have started to join. That's a great place to discuss anything that you've heard on these episodes or even things that you want to hear in future episodes. We also have started a Patreon page. So if you have been feeling that you want to support the show or show that you know that you enjoy it and you want to see it keep going, that would be the place to go. So if you go to patreon.com slash lambdacast, it'll also be in the show notes. Uh, you can go over there and see the reward tiers that we've put up and see if any of those look interesting to you. All right, so for this week, uh, we are going to hand things over to Aaron, who has uh, and who is leading the episode this week. Yeah, so this week we're going to take a different um, take on things. You guys are going to hear me talk a lot more, so sorry about that. But <laughs> we're going to have a slightly more C-sharp-centric episode because we're going to talk about... What I've done um, in about the last well, a few months since we started this podcast, I started trying to apply some of the concept we, concepts we've gone over um, into my applications that I that I write and some of my actual work. So before we start, um, could you tell us where you were in with regards to the application of sort of FP ideas before you were first a guest, before the first episode when you were a guest on the podcast? That's a good point. Um, I had a very small amount of experience with it because I'd used a library that actually that David written. I was doing a side project on my own um, and I used a library called Robot Arms, which is kind of an attempt to take the Unity game making, language, the Unity game making program, which you write in C-sharp for. It's an attempt to make that a little more functional I hadn't done a whole lot of research into it. I just had just that library and kind of some idea of how it might be used. And what it does is separates out your data and your um, functions into two separate areas. So you have a one class, kind of like a set of structs that holds your data, and then a whole other set called processors that operate on that data. Um, but it's pretty minorly functional in that regard. Like that's pretty much all it does is it separates your it kind of gives you standalone data and standalone functions. Yeah, so I, I had that, and I had uh, Dave talking to me a little bit about saying, okay, so when you're doing this, you're going to want all your all your variables to be public, and you want your as many functions as possible to be static. And so that was that was basically the extent of my ex experience. I hadn't really read a whole lot, um, but I did have I, that's a fair concession. I did have a little bit of experience doing a, a hobby project that I've been working on for a while, eight or nine months. Um, just my spare time. But other than that, I had very little conceptual knowledge of functional programming. I certainly wasn't trying to use, I didn't know what immutability was in programming, didn't know what a pure function was, um, didn't know what else, uh, why, I why I would want that stuff to be static, or even why the data and the functions were separated. 
It was just, here's a library with an idea. Go ahead and give this a try. And I liked it. it helped me organize my code in Unity, which for me, it was very difficult to keep things organized um, because Unity kind of gives you a lot of freedom in that regard. And um, I wasn't quite sure what to do with all that freedom. And so gotcha. in, in my past work, I felt like my code had gotten a little disorganized. So that's where I was at. Um, I wouldn't, wanted to go over briefly as well the what I do, because I think it's a little unusual. I'm not working for a company. I work for myself. I um, have written a few other desktop applications in C Sharp and um, also some ASP applications that primarily use SQL Server. I work almost completely on my own. I um, No one else hardly, basically no one else ever sees my code. I, I work solo here. I occasionally will um, contract out some work to other people, but primarily it's just me working, doing my own thing without a team. And so I have, uh, I'm sure developed some bad habits as a result, for example, uh, probably maybe two years ago now, I actually started using source control as opposed to just having code backups, which uh, I'll admit that, that that was maybe not a smart idea, <laughs> but um, that's, how I, that's how I rolled. And just the, the mere fact that I know no one's ever going to see some stuff that I do. Um, and I also know that my clients are often on a little bit more of a tight budget. I'll take shortcuts that sometimes I'll end up paying for later. But mm-hmm. I'll go ahead and uh, encode, encode ways that I'm kind of learning. I'm kind of paying for more now that I've been developing long enough that I wish I would have taken the time to do it right the first time kind of thing, which I'm sure is an experience most of us have had. You mean like with regards to like longer-lived projects? Yeah. Number, most of my projects are, uh, are quite long-lived. I, 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 two of my clients have been around for five, five plus years, so... Okay, so you have a fairly you have code from five years ago. Yes, yeah. is... code from 10, 10 years ago even. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah. So you're feeling sometimes the sort of the consequences of decisions that were made. Yeah, from a, from a very long time ago, and it's a little bit more humbling. I, I'm sure a lot of people have come in and worked on projects with code that was from ten years ago, and when you don't write it, it's really easy to dismiss and be like, "Oh my gosh, this guy didn't know what he was doing." And I do that too, but it's a lot more humbling when the guy is you. When you look back and you're <laughs> like, geez, this person, oh yeah, this, this person was me that wrote this. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's kind of what my work is like. Um, it's a lot more maintenance work on these older, on relatively older applications now. And I, 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 I'm always starting up new things, but I shouldn't say always. Every, every couple of years I start up a new project and that's, uh, that's kind of where I'm working. It's mostly solo stuff. And so to keep that in mind when I talk about how I adopt things because I don't necessarily have to run things by a team leader or even have things work with the rest of my team. I don't have to convince anyone to do things. I just get to do it as long as I can convince myself and my client that it's going to, in the end, work out well for them. Um, And my clients generally don't care how I code things as long as it doesn't take very long and it works. So all all that said, all all that explanation ahead of time, um, let's get started. Let's start talking about what I've talked about or talking about what I've adopted. So number one, absolutely, this has been the uh, number one best change I've made is whenever possible, use pure functions. Uh, we've talked about pure functions a lot. It's the idea that you have a, a function that quote unquote doesn't touch anything else outside of itself. A pure function, when you pass in a certain set of parameters, will always return the exact uh, same value. Um, and so your benefits here, when you're adopting pure functions in your in your program, and even even an existing even an existing code base, even if you're just adding a new library or adding some new functionality, um, you're going to get, for me anyway, better encapsulation, which is uh, maybe not the right term because I think that's actually also a programming term, but you um, get a not, get a get the ability to kind of separate things into parts that make sense into small parts that all make sense. You're if you have impure functions, it's they're usually probably doing more than they should. And when you break everything up into as many pure functions as possible, and then have your impure functions kind of sectioned off, and you know what where they are, because you know obviously you have to have your impure functions. If we talked about, you need to actually do things to, at, at times. But your pure functions are the parts that are normally the more difficult parts to reason around, and what you're actually going to want to test, and when you force yourself to use as many pure functions as you can, your code's going to be better organized, or at least mine has been. So when you're talking about um, sort of encapsulation here, would isolation be another word that kind of fits that? Name? Yeah, I think um, 
Yes, you, you lead, it leads to more single purpose. Encapsulation isn't maybe the best word. It leads to more single purpose okay. functions and single purpose um, code. Code that uh, you can look at, I mean, it, it makes it really easy to name things generally because they just do the one thing they're saying. So mm -hmm. your method names are real, are real easy and yeah. So isolation, yes. Gotcha. So did you start using pure functions? Like, did you start rewriting old stuff and like converting it to be pure? Or is it sort of like all the new stuff that you write is going to be pure? I would say when possible. Most of, of the new stuff I write is pure. And occasionally, um, I can't figure out a good way to do it, and I'm on a time time constraint, and I don't have to. And that's kind of the, the reality of the situation. But I'd say most of the time, it's worth taking the time to kind of figure out how to do it, because I think my code just looks so much cleaner. It's like code I could be proud of, so to speak. Um, okay. And I think that actually, if I weren't working for myself, if I wasn't this independent contractor that was kind of tight around budgets, I think that it would actually be easier because I think that normally you have a little more time to kind of make your code good and they, the people would rather have, when you're working in a team, it's a lot nicer to get code out to the rest of the team that's really easy to reason about. And so I would imagine that a lot of the listeners are in a situation like that. And so it's just going to be all the, all the better and all the easier for them. Okay. So um, are there any, like you said, you, this is first and foremost, the thing you want to talk about. What, what effects have you, um, have you felt? Like in what ways have you felt that, Putting having a tendency towards pure functions has been beneficial. Let's put a pin in that because I didn't totally answer your question from before. Okay. You asked also new code or do I edit my existing code? Um, oh yes. And uh, I didn't mean to skip over that. So new code ninety percent, existing code it depends. Um, this again just depends on am I making a small change that to rewrite it would be a huge deal? No, I'm not going to rewrite everything. Um, so I'd say it's kind of a case by case basis with existing code. If it's possible and feasible, if I'm making a, a if it's either a real small library or I'm making a significant change, then I'll rewrite I'll rewrite things. But again, it's not always the best decision if uh, time is a major issue to, to rewrite everything mm -hmm. and, and say nope. You know I'm only pure functions now. I know that this all works and it's super complicated. I'm going to untangle this mess, this spaghetti, and and make it nice and straight spaghetti again. Sometimes it's easier just to you know. Uh, make the fix on the spaghetti if uh, if it's all working. Right, right. So you're kind of doing it um, when it makes sense to do. If you're doing a major enough change, then you might as well redo it in this new yeah, exactly. style. And so what I put a pin in was what benefits have we uh, have I have I experienced personally from this? So like I said, um, I mean this is not necessarily like a saleable thing on your code. But being proud of your code is uh, kind of a funny way to put it. To put it, but it's you're proud of it because your code looks good. Um, you, I end up I feel like taking less time normally when I'm writing new stuff. Again, if you have to edit a big library, you're not going to end up with less time if it's a small change. But when you're writing new code, if you have um, an organization system like this, I think that you end up spending less time with it, and you certainly end up spending less time debugging things. Um, when one of my next points was you have this code that's very easy to test, which is another benefit I've come across, is that very simple functions means you have very simple tests, and the simple functions also generally mean you have fairly simple code. Within the functions themselves. Yeah, within the functions, exactly. It's not necessarily, and we've talked about simple versus complex and hard versus easy. It's not necessarily mm -hmm. easy. To, to do things right. this way. Like sometimes it'll actually take a little bit more time to kind of reason about how I should do it. And as I mentioned, occasionally I'm on a time constraint and I just can't figure out how to, how to, how to do things um, in, a, in a pure way or kind of how to, how to reorganize code to make right. it look a little nicer. And I just, I just say, sorry, I got I to gotta cut off here. Right, you didn't have time to make it simple, basically. Yeah, but as I, uh, I think as I get better at uh, functional programming, I'll be better at that. And at the same time, sometimes that's all right. Sometimes, well, it's not worth taking all the time to figure out exactly how this existing code works. And we just can make an edit. And again, this is this is my personal opinion. I think that uh, there probably are people that have had similar experiences and just uh, would agree. But that's my thought there. Oh, definitely. Like in, uh, in Gitkraken, when we um, recently uh, did a bunch of sort of reworking mm -hmm. of the internals, 
And we were moving from Flux to Redux, which is sort of a different way of handling the state. And Redux is all like pure functions, and it's very much in the style that you're talking about, where you have nice little easy-to-test single-purpose mm-hmm. things. We, we did that very, very piecemeal over a very long mm-hmm. period of time, where we, we didn't try to just rip everything out and rewrite the app. It was more like every time we touched one of these things, we converted yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then and then it happened over time. But eventually, you'll get there. But but when you started, you had like you kind of just converted the big piecemeal thing over into Redux, and it was not the way it was ones, supposed yeah. to be. But you recognized that and said, "Okay, we'll get to this sometime, hopefully." Yeah, and once you get near, once you get like over fifty percent, then sometimes it feels like, uh, like especially when you get to like like seventy percent, mm. then you're really annoyed every time you have to touch the old stuff. And so then it might be worth it to, to kind of just like do a push and like finish it out, which is what we're in the process of doing right now. So, but it can be definitely be brought in bit by bit. Like you don't have to just like stop the world, throw out, you know, 10, 20, 30, mm-hmm. lines of code, rewrite it all over the course of a couple of months and then resume. You can do this like as yeah. you go. It's sort of, we joke about like, we're, we're replacing the wings on the airplane while we're flying. Yeah, because I'm, part well, by part. I'm, I'm, that's a, that's probably a fair, fair assessment. You don't want to take the wings off while the, while the airplane's flying. And just hope you can get the wings back up in time. Um, right. You might just take off small pieces, and I and I'm kind of disparaging my stuff here when I say spaghetti code. It's it, you know I, I will I will I'll be the first to admit like a lot of that old stuff isn't great, but it all works just fine. It's not we're not talking about code, and and you too like your Redux. It wasn't that it didn't work. It wasn't that it, that it was a bad experience for the end user or anything, or maybe it was not the ideal experience, but it still was was acceptable for a very long time. Yeah, the app still functions. Yeah, sure. And so what we're talking about is taking functioning code and kind of improving on it, which is good and it's very nice for the programmers, but it's not always um, the highest priority on, in, in project development. Right. So the, the value here is that it buys you something down the line. Like you're basically taking something that works and putting it back so that it works, which has basically zero instant value. But when you need to go back later and look at that, you're kind of saving time on you're saving time uh, on future work. You're saving future time. Uh, do you view that as reducing technical debt? Yeah, absolutely. That that's that's exactly what you're doing, or that's exactly what I'm doing. Is mm-hmm. it, it's less that I have to deal with later? Because very often, if I'm dealing with yeah. this now, then I'm going to have to look at it again sometime in the future. And so, re- rewriting yeah. it well means okay, I'll I'll get to I'll have a much nicer experience next time. Um. So I was just going to go over a quick example on how it might aid aid in testing here. Um, I would mm-hmm. so there's a we've all I'm, well not all of us but most of us have probably done validation before, and uh, so I'll come across code sometimes for example that's oh I want to validate this form and I'll have a whole method that returns you know maybe a, a string that's the error that's the error message and if it's an empty string then it means there was no error which is not the best way to do it but that's how I did it back when. And so we've got this method that has to go through and it says, okay, is this text box an email address? Is the first name empty? And we're looking at all these fields individually. And that's a lot harder to test because you need, the only place you can do that is if you're actually on that form, as opposed to, well, I have a a validate email function that validates a, a string and says, okay, is this an email or is this not an email, which is probably included in some of your libraries at this point. Um, certainly it's available in C Sharp, but the the point being that's a whole lot easier to test than this monster validate all the fields on this form and, and then let me know if there was an error or not. Right. It's doing one and, and, and the big monster validate all these fields, you still probably have that, right? You have some but version it's just of delegating that. Yes, it's, to all these little functions. Yeah, exactly. Um, you can you can validate and you don't necessarily need to write a function that says, Oh, well, is this field empty or not? You don't need a function that handles that for you. But some of the more common validations, you, you don't want to have the code inside of inside your validate form there in this weird place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a real obvious example. I think that hopefully no one is is writing complex code that they have to write over and over again inside of their validate form. But I really did outsource some work and I got code back that looked just like that. So if you're doing that, don't don't do that that way. Separate separate <laughs> out your functions. Uh, don't do the same code over and over again, please. All right. So um, another benefit here, this is something we've kind of already talked about. It's kind of easier to tell and manage what your code does and what it affects. So if you are writing purely, uh, if you're writing mostly pure functions, then again, you can give it a nice clear name. You can kind of tell what it does because 
you know it's not touching anything else. So this is just this is just a flat out benefit of pure functions. This is not necessarily C sharp specific. This is when you write mm -hmm. pure functions and you know a function is pure, then it makes it really easy to know. Oh, okay, I'm getting this value back. Um, it's not going to change any of the values that I sent in there. It's not going to change anything outside of the actual function. And so that's just you know a nice big benefit of pure functions that that you get from trying to write pure functions. Do you have a, a way to know um, which of your functions are pure versus? I don't, and I don't know that there is a way in C sharp to do that. And so, I, you know, you could go around, go around that by like using a prefix or something like that. I have not found a good way yet to to do that. Yeah, there's no way to make the type system enforce it in C sharp. I was just wondering if you had sort of organized them in a certain way, like put them in a namespace, like instead of foo, it's foo dot foo dot pure or something like that. Right. Um, I have not, I, I think that, so I have not done that. And I think that's something that I could do. I've been thinking about how to do that for a while and I haven't uh, made any real steps towards that organization method. So maybe if, maybe um, if a listener has a good idea, feel free to write in with suggestions on how you might do it if you're in the same spot I am. And my second question was, uh, have you noticed that when you're dealing with pure functions, um, does it change at all the way you, um, relate to the signature because you're in C sharp, you've, you have type signatures. Does that type signature take on a different meaning when you know it's a pure function or is it kind of the same? I'm not sure what you mean. And I think it might be because I don't know exactly what a type signature is. Just the, the, the parameters that it takes and the value that it returns. Oh, I see. Does that signature give you more information when it's pure or have you found that it's kind of the same as the rest of your We C just had code? a nice episode about that on our, on our cast here. I think I wasn't on that actual cast, but I did listen to it um, talking about how much you can figure out just based off of the types that are passed into a function mm -hmm. because, um, but so far, no, I, that uh, hasn't come up at all. <laughs> um, and maybe it could, but it hasn't, it hasn't really entered into my, into my thinking about it yet. Into my, I think I can say zeitgeist there, but into my thought process for, <laughs> um, thought process for how I, how I look at the functions and figure out what they do. But you are, you're right. That's you could, you certainly could look at it and kind of figure it out, but that's not something I'm doing now. I found that that didn't really start to become like habitual where I like looked at the type first mm -hmm. until I was in a language that really, really forced that hard, like a Haskell. Yeah. And then after that, I started doing it even when I was back in Seizure. Yeah, it was an interesting episode to listen to that for me, to, to learn about how, you, how much you can tell about a function based off of the types that are coming in when they're pure. Um, mm -hmm. And so, does that, what was the name of that episode? The, the Abstraction and Parametric Polymorphism. Yes, give that a listen if you haven't, guys. It's a good one. Um, and so another thing that I wrote down here in my notes that I've since updated was uh, I had thought that pure functions, or, or sorry, void functions, weren't, so, weren't something you'd ever write in a functional language. Um, and I, this was because I'd often looked through my code and I saw all the void functions that were pretty unnecessary. And so I... Do you mean void in the... In the I'm sorry, the return, a return type of void. Oh, sure. Okay. So because you could take no parameters, which is kind of like a void, like from a C style, that'd be like void of the parameters, mm -hmm. but then there's also void for the return. I'm sorry. I, I do mean uh, functions that return, functions that have no return value. They don't return. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and uh, so... Obviously, um, you can't really write a pure, well, I guess you could write a pure void function. You just know if it's pure and it's void that it does absolutely nothing. Right. Um, but you would never make that in the practical sense. So a void function is impure. And so I had this idea, well, I should probably not be using void functions. I should be doing things differently, structuring my code differently. And I was right in a sense because you can, I think, uh, it's easy to get in the habit of using void functions as a bit of a, a crutch when you just need to do some stuff that maybe you shouldn't, uh, maybe you're kind of grouping things together that you shouldn't. And so for me, very, very often void functions were a bit of a code organization problem where I was running some functions and I think you could reason about it, but it would have been smarter of me to, to kind of separate it out into two separate functions, a pure and an impure function. But I um, since have talked to some talked to Dave and some other people about void functions, and, and they happen in uh, in functional language too, right? You're sometimes going to write, especially when you're updating your UI, for example. You very well could have some void functions that are, that are doing some work for you. Right. So you you talked about your ninety percent um, pure, which implies that there's ten percent that's effectable. Mm -hmm. Ninety percent right? pure. I'm uh, not I'm not coding one hundred eight percent, but yeah. Sorry, did I say that wrong? It's so, right. Yeah, ninety percent uh, pure, ten percent effective. Yes, and and you know you could we could argue what the right ratio is. That actually sounds about right to me. 
um, somewhere in that vicinity. And so those 10%, I would expect to be uh, void functions. I would expect mo pretty much, uh, unless you have a very good reason, that your effectful functions are generally good not, you know, they're off doing effects. Mm -hmm. They could return a value to another effectful function, but I think a lot of times they, they it's okay for those to be void. Yeah. And those are, of course, very necessary functions. That's what actually makes stuff happen in your in your program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, yeah, you have to have effectful functions somewhere, unless you have some weird language that's automatically taking care of a bunch of stuff for you, automatically taking care of mapping. And I mean, I suppose you could do like a simple data editing program if you if you had these crazy libraries that took care of enough of the binding for you behind the scenes. But even then, you just don't know it, but there's functions, to, you know, there's void functions going on behind the scenes. Yes, exactly. You're not doing it yourself, but it is certainly going on. So, so you were talking about with the void that um, you kind of felt you, you feel like okay, there are times to use this um, when you're doing effectful things. Yes, there are absolutely. So I I went in with the original initial thought like I got to get rid of all these void functions, and sometimes I couldn't figure out how to code something efficiently because I needed to call the same code block from multiple places and didn't make it didn't need a return value. Like I was updating my my state, and state had to be updated from multiple spots. Mm -hmm. Like right to the database, like yeah, and and the exact same, you know, it 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 would not make sense to have that same code repeated in all those different places, of course, because again, we mm -hmm. we just talked about that. That's what functions are for. So we don't have to repeat repeat code. I might argue that that's what subroutines are for, and that we conflate them in most programming languages. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. We'll, we'll I'll I'll leave that completely untouched and just say um, <laughs> that uh, I couldn't figure out how to get rid of some of these void functions and keep my code making sense and efficient. Mm -hmm. And the reason was that void functions did fit there. Right. They served a legitimate role. But there were other times that I'd look and say, oh, I just wanted to run a whole bunch of code. And so I gave it a name and slapped a void return type, did a whole bunch of effectful and non-effectful things in the middle of it. And I got a non-testable, difficult, difficult to debug mess. Gotcha. And so I, I would say just just uh, when you see that void function type, just just use care, take a look at it, and make sure that you are only doing the impure things that you need to do in that function and not mixing in other things that should be somewhere else. Do you find that um, from there you're calling into pure functions to like prepare some data and then getting it back and then doing some effectful thing with it? You mean from inside of my impure? Yes. So you have an effectful function. You go like, okay, go... You know, go to the database, pull something out, hand it into this pure function, which does my actual like business logic calculations, mm -hmm. and then it comes back to something, and then you can now display that on the screen or put it back in the database. So or... sometimes, sometimes yes, and I I think that um, generally I wouldn't organize things that way if I were reorganizing code. I think that, um, and this is hard to to think through on the fly, but it feels like I wouldn't want to do that. I'd want to um, you want to pass in as parameters if you can. To the effect, even to the effectful function. To the effectful function, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I do my restructuring, that's often, I think, something I'm doing, which is trying to take out some of that logic stuff. So even parameterize, even with the effectful functions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because cool. you can, I mean, you can have a, so I think, a, 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 you know, one of these effectful functions, you can pass in a bunch of pure parameters on the effectful function, and that's great. I mean, you're not, you're, mm -hmm. you're doing a good thing there. Does that answer your question? Is that uh, where you were looking to go? Well, so I, I mean, I, I see it structured both ways. Like at some point there has to be some effectual function that kicks off the whole thing mm -hmm. and does the initial, like whatever your initial thing is, handle that request, talk to a file, database, right, whatever. Database, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's going to hand off to some pure functions to do the real work, you know, to do the, the interesting logic that your application does. Yeah. So kind of the, you talk about the start of the chain. I'm thinking more on the end of the chain, but um, yeah, the start of the chain is kind of firing it off and then you, you do your middle work and then your end of your chain is effectual again. Yes, to, to put it somewhere or return it or whatever. Yeah. Yep. All right. So that um, pretty much covers the pure function adoption. And um, I do highly recommend it, having worked with it for just my short amount of time here in C Sharp. It's been, it's been a big benefit to me and a big time saver and a big clarity increaser. Have you found that C Sharp is uh, especially good or bad at supporting pure functions? Or is it kind of neutral, like it isn't? Um, you can do it. But as we talked about, there's no way to, to mark if they're pure or not pure. And that's a pretty big problem for me anyway. Um, okay. But there's nothing stopping you from doing it. It's to, I mean, as far as saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to prefix all my pure functions with pure, or I'm going to prefix all my impure functions with impure, you know, whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. If you can find a, a system to, to just say, okay, in text, 
that you're going to, you're going to do that. It's just all the responsibilities on the programmer. Um, and so I'd say it's fairly poor support. I, I in fact, I could say it couldn't be much worse <laughs> as far well, as I mean, support, support um, for it. In the, in the sense of like, it doesn't actively discourage you from writing pure functions though, right? Like it's no, not hindering no, no. you. So there's, there's no, there's just it, no support exactly. for it. Like, there's no, it, it absolutely um, can do it. It's just C Sharp isn't, isn't giving any tools to help you do it. Right, okay. But that's not, I mean, I'm still using it and I'm very happy I am. It's not a reason not to use it. It's just, I've, I've learned a little bit about other languages that do give you tools and so they sound nice. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like a burden to do it that way versus regular functions, like sort of re regular air quoting, like regular C sharp functions. No, it, it, it's it's not a burden at all. I mean, it's still. It, I think it's uh, making that change still helps. Another thing that I've tried to do and not had great success with is to uh, lower or completely stop my usage of null, and it's um, been very difficult for me. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, it's not really well supported in C sharp to not have null values. There's some things that um, that kind of want null to exist, and like what? Uh, like objects, just in general, which is a, a lot of variable types. Meaning that um, if you get a reference to an object, you can never you'll never it's yeah not you, null. you you ne first yeah you never really know um, if it's null or not mm -hmm. unless. Unless you're dealing, unless you, um, I don't think structs are nullable. It's, I think, uh, a big, Correct. big benefit on structs, yep. which we're going to get to soon. But um, I don't have a lot of examples about why this is. I think it, it's just come up surprisingly often for me that it's just, it's tough to work with uh, without, it's tough to try and enforce it. It's tough because if you use other libraries, then you lose control and they very well could be working. We're using null. So you would say that the use of null is pervasive and thus it's kind of like coming at you from all angles yeah and and again though in this situation you can try to write your own code um without using null or with using null as as minimally as possible because of the benefits mm -hmm. we've talked about where you cut down your null reference errors um it's just so often you're working with outside libraries or you um i have written down here events and delegates have to default to null i see and so there may be listeners who have had better luck than me, but I have not had great luck trying to wipe out null usage in, in my code. I just, I, I kind of, uh, when I can, do it, but so far, benefits have been pretty minimal. Um, cost is also pretty minimal, but you still, I still end up with a lot of making sure my, my options aren't null before I work on them. So are you, would you say that, although you cannot guarantee that nulls will not be in your code because you have to interface with these libraries and deal with the nulls that they had back, that you're more, um, like, are you saying that you're more uh, aware of and or you see the value in checking sort of at every step so you never, like, allow a null to kind of freely propagate through your Yeah, I think that that's um, kind of is is one way that I, that I benefited from the discussion of null. It's something that we should be doing anyway as programmers, but it's good to kind of have a brought back to the forefront of our mind is you don't want to have a, a potential line of code that that errors out and, and mm -hmm. you're rather than try catching oh, okay something was null I'll just throw an error something must have gone wrong um, if possible you can try and cut off the number of ways that an error can occur by doing that check for null when possible right. and so yes that has brought that more to my more to the forefront of my mind and I think cleaner code is going to check for that null kind of as a, as a just-in-case. Okay. There's some libraries that um, I may not have sent your way that um, were recently talked about in the C-Sharp channel mm -hmm. on the FB chat that uh, allow you to sort of um, uh, wrap things in, in a maybe type. Okay. Um, and it'll it'll wrap up null, basically, for you. So you can say, call that thing and then wrap it up in a maybe for me. And then I'll treat it as a maybe from, from here on. Um, which is, so just real briefly here, the maybe... Uh... I bet a lot of us here in C Sharp have dealt with um, that question mark after a variable name. Date time is the, kind of the most common, I think, with a question mark. And it just, what you do is you, it, it wraps up your your variable into a, you can say dot value, or you can do dot has value. So it gives you some methods so that it'll kind of let you know that you can't just directly access that value without going around 
sorry, let me re, let me rephrase that. It makes it uh, easier to work with nulls on those values because it is constantly letting you know that there might be a null value. And you um, would want to do things like, or it could do things for you like get value or defaults. And so if it is null, it'll give you a default value. And so there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of a helper functions around that. I'm not sure what the question mark after those variable names are called, but they are. Th quite those helpful. are like the nullable primitives, right? Yes, that does sound right. I think that's what I have it. And there's a um, one thing that I will say, um, maybe are very similar to the nullable primitives, but with the nullable primitive, unless I'm mistaken, you can still call, you can still use the dot value and get a null back even if it doesn't have a value. I think that you're right, and I don't and remember so for can, sure. <laughs> you can kind of proceed as if, like, um, well, I'm just going to assume it came back okay. Yeah. Whereas these um, wrappers mm -hmm. that, that people have written, they have this very special property of there is no way to directly just say, give me the value back, because it might not be there. Mm -hmm. The only way to get it back is to do a, um, basically, get value where you provide a default, and if it doesn't have, if it's null, mm -hmm. it'll give you the default back, and otherwise it'll give you the value. So if you're if it's an int, for example, it's wrapped up, you are getting an int back guaranteed. Mm -hmm. If it's a date time, you are getting a date time back because you had to provide a default. Basically there's just a get value or default as opposed to a dot, you know, a dot value. Yes, exactly. And that is a very useful thing because it means that um, when you're working with these, you all the next step in the chain always has a legitimate value, mm -hmm. and so it can never fail. Yeah, as opposed to putting so what the nullable primitives do, and I and again I'm I'm it's been a little bit, so I don't know exactly uh, how they work, but I think you're right that you mm -hmm. can get that value. It puts a little bit of pressure on the programmer to check that has value. Like you're sure. supposed to say, oh, okay, does this have a value? If it does, then do this, or or otherwise get the default, and so. What that what, because the compiler's not forcing it for you. What you're stuck with there is, I hope that I'm using this right. I hope that other people are using it right. But it might end up coming through null. Right, right. So this is a place where C sharp um, does not help us out and doesn't have. It it almost discourages um, this pursuit, right? Because you can't say I want a non-nullable object reference. Mm -hmm. Like I'm totally fine requiring an object to be at the other end of this at all times. Um, but C-sharp won't allow you to express that, um, except through a struct. I have some notes here, by the way. Are we talking about the immutable library? Um, or we uh, said not the same library? Um, which one is that? Um, so I was going to get to immutability a little later, but um, on Slack I posted a question, and the Slack user Kent CB posted about you can define it as immutable, and there's a NuGet package called Systems Collections Immutable that gives you a, a immutable collection support. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure that this could be the same library because I don't think that necessarily immutable and not null are always tied together. Right. Yeah. That's they're they're not the same. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Kent CB. We'll get to that library soon. What's your next thing? Um. So uh, one of the benefits, and this is a little tied to the pure function idea, but um, what I've found is that I end up using a lot more static libraries when I have have switched over here to this functional mindset because you get these very very simple functions that are sometimes a little bit more reusable because they are so functional, because they are so uh, simple. So, so you're saying you tend to write more kind of code that might have historically been in a utility kind of class? Yes, exactly. And, and, and really, it is, really it is just I'm getting more utility classes. I had utility classes before, and now I just find that um, maybe, there, maybe there are more of them. And like if theoretically all your code could be like these utility static utility classes. That is that is very theoretically, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, gotcha. And uh, the simplest example, which again, this is the kind of thing that I would have, you know, most of us would have done before. But you maybe have a validation class that validates your email for you if your language didn't already have that. Mm -hmm. And so you just get a nice, very simple function that as long as you, you know, know how to find it, it's right there for you. You're not writing that same code in multiple places or multiple projects. So you might have like in the validation class, it's like stat class. You might have validate email, validate address, validate phone number. Yeah, you have all, exactly. In your validation class, whatever it is that you come across is something you commonly need to validate, which again, that's not necessarily the best example because your library probably has a lot of, or you can find those in a library already, mm -hmm. but it's a it's a simple enough example, so that's that's kind of that benefit in itself. Like, you know, you you end up using more of these utility classes, more of these static libraries that have a lot of um, helper functions for you. And and you find that that code you're writing feels more general as a result. Yeah, um, 
Sometimes, yes. There's absolutely, I'm still writing code that's only, you know, even, even these peer functions are still only ever going to be used one place. Or at least it feels that way. Um, and uh, that's all right. That's, I mean, it's, it's, that's all right. That still happens. That, that happened before. Um, but I also write code that is sometimes more general now. Sometimes, because you're breaking the code out into these different pieces, some of the pieces are more universal. Do you find that before you would have had like one big piece and now you have like a general piece and a special purpose piece, like the, the, a piece that is very specific to your um, application? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what happens is, uh, so for a lot of my code, even I have these big long functions that did a number of different things and in breaking them down. So I've talked about how, you know, I'm trying to, trying to use peer functions and some of the benefits there. Uh, some of the benefits are from doing that. One of the benefits is that you end up with shorter, smaller functions too. As you mentioned, like you get, you, you break up code into, into more pieces. And I guess it's arguable whether or not that's a benefit or not. But it, again, for me is a, is a benefit because you get smaller, more testable pieces. And like I'm mentioning here, you can sometimes reuse some of those pieces. All right, and the last thing that I've um, worked on a bit, uh, but haven't had the best luck with is trying to code in some immutability. I think that the simplest, very first thing you can do with this is to, if you're not doing it already, which I, I wasn't, and I imagine there's a lot of people that aren't, just uh, try and use structs when you can. A struct is uh, kind of similar to a class, but it's just it just stores data for you. And once you, once you instantiate it, you can't change the values. Well, actually, I think that C-sharp doesn't enforce that. I think you have to make your fields read-only. Yeah. You can make your structs uh, immutable basically so that you instantiate your data structure and then you're not changing it again and so you know from looking at it okay this whatever i instantiate this value as it's staying that way and in c-sharp at least since those are passed by value and not by reference you can guarantee that they're not null um also true yeah you can't structs can't be null so you know they're not gonna be null that's right so i kind of made a little comment here about how it might feel like, you know, you're here, you're, you've been on the FP podcast, listen to the FP podcast for a while. So this is maybe not an argument I need to make for you, but you can say the same thing to someone else. Why would you write a struct instead of a class? Because a class is the same, like you can obviously have a class with a bunch of properties and you can change all the, change all the values on them and you can have methods and you could you know, potentially change those values in the future. So why would you give up the power and the flexibility in order to get a struct where you can do a whole lot less? And, uh, the reason is you kind of you get a hidden cost when you give yourself a bunch of pro power as a programmer, um, and that's that your code loses some readability and some some ease of comprehension when you're using. And this is again, this is something we've kind of hounded on you for ten episodes, eleven episodes now. So you guys know this, but when you give yourself a whole bunch of power to work with, when you say, "Oh, you know what? I'm going to use a class for everything. I'm never going to use a struct." You do have all that power, but you also, as a result, don't necessarily know what's happening without looking through all the different spots where that code is touched or where that object is touched, for example, where the class is touched. And when you use a struct, you know exactly what's happening in the same way that with a pure function, you know exactly what's happening. Because um, a change, if, if you hand your struct value to another function, they get their own copy. So they can't possibly affect yours. So you're isolated from each other. Um, that Like changes to one are isolated from the other. Yes, that's true. But that's kind of just a piece of it. Um, that's very true. But you also um, know, even inside of a, let's say for whatever reason, you do have a longer function, you know, when for when you instantiated the value of that struct, that that's the value. You don't, you're not changing little bits and pieces of it. It's it's that same it's that same value. Gotcha. Um, just to point out here, you could make a struct mutable, but you're talking about making the fields read only, so that once you create it, they they stay. Yeah, I actually the way you put them. You are you're totally right. I forgot all, all my all the properties now on a on my struct, so I just give them a read only, and then they're right. Okay, so within that context of a read only struct, you know, once you get it, it's ten lines later, it's the same thing. Yeah. It couldn't possibly have gotten, you know, fiddled with somehow. Right. Gotcha. And so, yeah, basically, the more specific and precise you make a code, like the rather than using the the super flexible multi tool for everything, if you can find something that fits more exactly what you need and just use that, and other people understand what that tool is, then your code is a whole lot easier to. We use this phrase a lot to reason about. 
because the possible set of things that can interact with it is so much lower. Yes. So that said, as far as immutability on the whole, um, it's been, I haven't, uh, I haven't taken the step to kind of fully implement it. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Kent, on, Kent CB on Slack uh, talked about a li- there's a library where you can get immutable collections, which is um, one of the difficulties you run into is trying to code that yourself. It's, it's I, I highly recommend you check out the uh, immutable collection library rather than trying to take care of it yourself. Right, and that's like an official Microsoft like .NET. Yeah, thing. it's it's uh, we should uh, we'll post a link to the to their site um, talking about it because it's quite interesting to hear them talk about why it is they wrote it in the first place. They kind of run through problems with shared states and why you would want uh, immutable collections, and it's it's a lot of the same things you hear when you talk about why you want to use a functional language. Right. Like, clearly there was some inspiration there as they're working on F-sharp and, and other functional-related things. Um, so all that said, I haven't... Uh, immutability is a, is, a, is, an, uh, is a concept I haven't really integrated into my own personal code. I feel like it's something that I could do, and I think with some, with some hoops, like using the immutable collections, I could make it happen. But I still, like, I, I don't make... I think that... Uh, if I wanted to do some research, I'm sure I could find some ways to say, okay, well, my primitive types are immutable now and could probably do some. And this, that doesn't necessarily mean making everything a const. I think that consts are only, consts basically you can't assign to, well, there's some, there's some issues that run, you run into with consts about assigning them to variables that you don't know right when the program compiles, but you want to assign to later. Immutability, I haven't used all that much yet, but I'm interested in kind of stepping in there. Well, I mean, you said you've been using it with this, the read-only structs. I mean, that yes, is... Yes, that's, that's kind of been my, my start, is saying, okay, let me try and get some of my data structures separate from, from the functions that, that, uh, that work on them. I will say that I know that, at least in C-sharp, the uh, mutable collection interfaces are often on top of regular mutable like, uh, like lists, but they uh, give a read-only sort of interface on top of those lists. So you can kind of take existing stuff and sort of just pretend <laughs> via the interface that you're, you're working with that it is immutable. That's kind of a, a way when your language doesn't have a, an immutable collection sort of baked in to get some of those benefits. Um, you mean that uh, you could code as if it were immutable and then you could use that library freely? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, so the, the system collections immutable like interface, as I understand it, is not an actual like persistent data structure in the same way that like Clojure or Scala or Haskell, like their data structures, when you go to mutate something, they actually allocate in a way where it shares as much of the structure as possible, but it does allocate a new object that is completely independent from the old object. And in a lot of the um the the built-in like system collections immutable stuff, it's it's reusing like a regular array list under the scene, under the hood. But it's giving you an immutable interface on top of right. it. So basically, the way that you code, it feels like you're writing a functional, but behind the scenes, it's actually it's the same old like data structures. Yeah, but that's that's good enough. Like that, that gives you that the the feel. <laughs> yeah, in many cases, that might prove good enough. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so depending on your specific use case, that may work out. If you're trying to, um, if you need to be handed, let's say, a list, and then you want to be able to append something to it but you need to get a new list and you don't want to reallocate that entire thing because say it's, you know, 500 K or a meg or a couple megs of data. You may not want to like be making copies of that all the time. Okay. Um, and a persistent data structure would make a very efficient copy of that where it only allocates a couple hundred K. No, well, sorry, a couple hundred bytes. Um, basically to hold the new data. It kind of depends on how much data is in each like node of the tree that it's storing yeah. it in. Um, whereas some of these other, you, all I'm saying is you have to look because under the hood it may have to reallocate a whole new array. Yeah, I hear. I hear. It's like if you're doing this operation multiple times on a fairly big list um, and you're appending data to it, it's not real efficient in that scenario. And even though it's giving you this immutable interface to it, because it's a regular mutable data structure under the hood, the only way to maintain that is basically to make yeah, copies. Yeah, and so you're you're eating up all your memory very possibly. It could, yeah. So, did, you know, maybe that's a problem for you, maybe that's not, depending on your, your application. Uh, but it's just something to look into. And this is, again, when we did the episode on immutability, we kind of talked about how this is a thing that some languages do not give you a lot of support for, and other languages are a little bit better on. Although I think generally pretty much any language that's not functional first 
has a fairly large pain point around immutability about trying to do that yourself. Yeah. I think that's very common. Yeah. Cause even like you're saying when, when you're cheating it here and you, and you get to code, like you have a immutability, you don't immutability, you don't, and you have the, the pain point of behind the scenes, it's really inefficient because the language isn't supposed to support it. All right. So now you, you had mentioned, uh, well, sorry, did, did you have anything else that you wanted to cover? No, that's, so that's the end of my list. So, uh, just as a quick review, we talked about, um, Pure functions at length because they're really amazing for code organization. We talked about um, trying to avoid using null when possible, but it's difficult because of the language. We talked about how um, we get more static libraries and or utility classes, as they might traditionally be called, because of the fact that we're separating our functions out um, into smaller bits. And we talked about using immutability specifically um, for me personally with structs, but also um, the immutable lists that you can find in the show notes uh, library for C-sharp. So now you're talking about potentially on a new project, looking into a, a language that's uh, sort of functional first, functional by design. What's, um, what's driving that? Well, I uh, have an opportunity. I'm, I'm looking at, and, and again, if anybody out there doing contract work, you know that there's a big difference between, okay, I'm, you know, I'm starting this project, this looks good, and okay, I actually got paid for the first time. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a sad truth that uh, most projects fail before that first check comes in. Um, and that's just, a, that's just a fact of life, I think, as an independent developer. And mm -hmm. so I'm still taking the opportunity um, in this research phase for the project of teasing or, or playing with the possibility of saying, okay, well, I have a little freedom here again. It's it's just me. Um, why not uh, use? I, I, Logan, who couldn't make it, make it here tonight, has the uh, term you get. Oh man, I'm forgetting it. You get like three tech coins. I'm trying to remember what they're what they actually called. Uh, innovation innovation tokens? tokens. Thank you. And this is a this is probably someone else's idea, right? The innovation token idea. Right. Yeah. Um, well, so this is not my idea, but basically, on a new project, you get three innovation tokens. Three ideas where okay i'm gonna i'm gonna go somewhere new with this and so i'm thinking about using one of my innovation tokens on this project uh, on my for my front end it's going to be a, a a web project of saying all right I'll, I'll maybe i'll use elm i'll use pure script i don't think i'll use haskell i don't know if i'm ready to make that jump but both elm and pure script look interesting uh i don't think lodash fp or uh maybe ramda but probably not ramda so there's all there's obviously as I name these libraries there's lots of options for what you could do and at the top of my list are um, Elm and and uh, PureScript thanks so why am I thinking about doing that because I think that I'll get a lot out of of trying a project that way and I'll kind of see all right so some of these concepts have been great in C sharp um, there are some pain points as we talked about today in trying to get them to work in a language that isn't designed to work that way. And I kind of want to take them on in a bigger sense and say, okay, so what's it like working with this in the real world? You know, we're not, we're leaving this familiar C-sharp and we're, we're leaving like, well, you're still going to be coding every, you know, in a, in, a, in a language you're very familiar with. And all you're doing is kind of changing syntactically how you're coding. We're saying, okay, drop all that. We're going to go to a whole new world, like Aladdin. Um, and, uh, <laughs> And try things out there in a in a in a different kind of uh, environment that's set up to support it. And so it will mean okay, I've got to learn some some new syntax, and I kind of get to be that that total beginner again. Um, of where I actually do have to rather than working in C sharp and just saying okay, how can I do this in a pure way? Saying all right, I'm not working in C sharp. I have to write this in a pure way because that's the way the language is designed. Right, there's no uh, escape patch anymore. There's no shortcut. Yeah, and so for these, I, I mentioned before, like I come across problems sometimes where I just have to say, you know what, I can't figure out in a in a reasonable amount of time how to code this in the in a smart way, and um, so I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to code this the uh, I'm hesitant to call it the dumb way, but I'm gonna I'm just gonna make this work. Let's say the imperative. Yeah, way. I'm just gonna make this make this work in a, in a more traditional imperative way. Um, that's not an option in Elm, and I'm interested to see, okay, how's that going to work? And I know that in Elm, both Elm and Pure Scripts can do what I'm trying to do, and so, and, and I, I know that eventually I can get there too. 
Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like oh, I'm going to go ahead and, and take the plunge this time and build as if I'm working traditionally and and know that it's going to take me a little bit more time, but see how I feel about a functional after I've actually done a project. In it. Awesome. So in, uh, in a couple months, we can come back and you can give your experience report of first dive into a purely functional language. Yeah, yeah, we can have another uh, Aaron work. Well, the the issue is I'm kind of working myself out a job on this podcast because I, as I mentioned when we started, I'm supposed to be our, our FP noob, our FP audience surrogate. And sorry, audience, but I am learning as we're going along here quite a bit about uh, functional programming. And so we may need to pick up someone new here. Hopefully our audience is learning too. Oh, that's true. You guys might be learning. I hope so. But yeah, we, we might uh, look into someone who can help fill that role also. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. We'll uh, let us know if you have any um, suggestions or if you're fine with uh, with uh, me learning along with you. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience with that. Um, as always, you can send us your thoughts on this. Contact at LambdaCast.com or join us on our shiny new channel at the FP chat Slack community. It's just LambdaCast. You can join us in there. And until next episode, have fun. Yeah, good luck, guys. Have fun. Thanks for your time.